Hey, Pinkers, we're glad you're back for another Pink Bike Podcast because this is going to be a good one. I'm Mike Levy, and today I've got Matt Beer, Henry Quinney, and Mike Casimer on the show because episode 82 is all things field testing. Now, if you're a new listener, watcher, or reader, and you don't know what the field test video series is all about, the gist is that we pick a category of bike, like enduro and e-bikes, for example, and then get in a bunch of the newest and most notable examples to compare them against each other. So while our normal standalone reviews that you see every Monday are very in-depth, the field test takes that same detailed approach, but is all about comparisons. Now, why do we do it that way? Because you already know that these expensive bikes, well, they're probably going to be pretty damn good, aren't they? But what we don't know is how they compare to each other. So that's what field testing is all about. Now, we're going to get into how we tested the bikes in a few minutes, but there's really nothing better than back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back comparisons, especially if you're trying to test a bunch of the same category of bikes. It's really the best way to do it. Now, I don't know how many field tests we've done in the past, but it feels like around 100 or something. We've done cross-country bikes, trail bikes, and even a couple field tests where we've had a ton of value-minded bikes. But this time around, it was four of the latest EMTBs and five of the most interesting enduro bikes. And before you ask, yes, we definitely would have had more bikes. But as most of you know right now, Bikes are pretty hard to come by right now. A lot of them are not available. And no, we did not review the bike you wanted to see. I'm not even sorry about it anymore. Next time, fax me a list of the bikes that you want to see reviewed and we'll get them in. So aside from the bikes, we had some fresh meat for this podcast and for the field test. Matt Beer and Henry Quinney joined the team recently. This was their first field test, so I have all sorts of questions for them. Henry Quinney, what was the most challenging part of the field test, and why was it having to switch your brakes every time you wanted to ride a bike? (laughs) Wow, wow. No, the most challenging part was pretty funny because I just got to Canada. I did my hotel quarantine. Mm -hmm. I got in a car. I came straight to Sun Peaks. And I started testing straight away. Yeah. That was probably going from like being in like a small hotel room in Vancouver, sitting by an aircon unit during that heat wave for two weeks yeah. and playing yeah. Age of Empires. to <laughs> then going, going and riding back to back to back to back. That that was that was some good going. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we we did kind of throw you in the deep end there, but you did well. You did well. Oh man, the first couple of days I was riding like I had three inches of grip on a four inch turd, eh? Just absolutely stiff as a board. I, but, I don't know what that means, but <laughs> that sounds somebody like somebody tell me. We got comments. into it. We got into it. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, Matt, beer. What was the hardest part of the field test for you? You looked a bit beat down at one point. I think it was like day three or four. I saw you laying in the grass. You might have been sleeping. Yeah, yeah, well, we got there a little bit earlier than everybody else, so I had a couple more runs in before everybody else. We a couple dozen, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, a little overexcited. Definitely smashing out laps. Yeah. Well, I've never bonked from descending before, so I can add that to uh, my repertoire now. (laughs) So, in hindsight, in hindsight, would you pace yourself more going into the next field test? I think it just had to do with uh, some health issues I had at the okay. time, uh, but I got yeah. those sorted out and made it through the whole field test. 
but yeah, I was just on like a depleting recovery program that week. So day Fair five, enough. I was, I was definitely feeling it. All right. What did you think of Sun Peaks? What did you think of the tracks? Oh man. I know that place pretty well. Spent a bit of time there before and, uh, raced a couple different, uh, trails there or courses. And, um, yeah, it's amazing, man. It's one of the few places where you can really get up to speed, like so 60, fast. 70 K. Yeah. So you fast. are mocking down and you're not on fire road. Like this is on trail. Yeah. So yeah, you can really open it up there, but it's pretty diverse as well. So yeah. you can have fun on a trail bike, a downhill bike, e-bikes. Yeah. Did you have a favorite trail there? Oh, that's pretty tough to say. I mean, they did a lot of work to their jump trail. Um, yeah. that's running steam shovels running really good this year, added some new things last year. And, uh, Canada line is like that sort of intermediate jump trail. Right. That one's pretty cool. Yeah. But right. honey drop. Yeah. It's their like classic DH one. Yes. Yeah. All that right. might be, that might take the cake. Henry, do you have a favorite trail at Sun Peaks or were you just so busy testing? <laughs> You don't even I, remember the names. <laughs> there was one. I don't remember any of the names, but there was one that was, I thought you probably recognize it. it, had trees either side. It was about 75 centimeters wide and had rocks. Oh, Do you know the some one? Some rocks, some root. Yeah. Some yeah, turns, it was, some rocks. Let me guess, roots. it was a little fast. <laughs> it was a little fast. I actually went for a ride one evening with Brian and I showed him it. So he's your best chance of finding out what that trail was called. All right. But my word, it was super rough, really fast, but not like battered rough. But like, like it was, it was made to be rough. It's not just like rotted out and stuff. So you could absolutely smash down it. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a very, very nice evening riding those bicycles. Nice. (laughs) I think, I think my favorite trail was the walk through the village to the vertical cafe who made me multiple bagels and cream cheese and London fogs every single morning. This is the thing. So I went into that cafe and they said, oh, where are you from? And I said, "Um, oh, I'm from, I'm Squamish. And this little guy chirps up. He's like, oh, that's where the pink man's from. The pink man. I was like, who's the pink man? Oh, he's the nicest fellow in all the world. (laughs) It's just like, oh my God. I don't think they're talking about me then. (laughs) They were talking about you, man. He was like, he says Squamish is so beautiful. (laughs) well it is it definitely is that the people in that cafe if you guys are ever in sun peaks go to the vertical cafe get yourself some food it's it's pretty dang delicious anyway we have a ton of field test stuff to cover from how we tested the bikes things we liked and didn't like surprises there were a couple surprises there were some letdowns a peek behind the scenes so with all that in mind And because Brian isn't here to tell me otherwise, today we're going to skip the news. Nobody has to listen. Kaz, you don't have to read the news. That's good. James isn't here. Everybody? Everybody? Yeah. Everybody already saw the news. We don't need to talk about it. Let's just skip it once in a while. Let's just talk about bikes instead. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is going to be long enough without it. So let's just start talking about these bikes. And the first thing I'm going to do is to recap our enduro bikes. And then I've got some questions for Matt and Henry. So to recap, we had We Are One's new arrival that has 150 mils of travel with a 160 fork. That's that carbon bike that's made in Kamloops. We had GT's Force. That's 160 mils of travel. Idler Pulley, 170 millimeter fork. The YT Capra, 165 millimeters. The new Transition Spire, 170 millimeters on both ends. A lot of purple. And then we had the Norco Range, the big boy. 
37 pounds, idler pulley, 170 mils of travel. So first question, Henry, what yes. bike would you have liked to have seen at the field test that we didn't have here? Oh, like, hey? do they have to come out in the last six months? Or can they be like last year? Because I'd I mean, really love to put a nuke-proof Giga in the mix to that. I think it's that sort of super enduro bike. I think I'd love mm-hmm. to see how a similar, a similarly packaged bike to something like the Norco goes without that idler. You know what I mean? You know mm-hmm. how we can how we can pick apart those two because I think that's a really because that bike. I actually had a descent that I put a one by twelve drivetrain on for a video once, and that's basically how they came up with the Giga. They had a they had a mule that they basically butched into their enduro bike, and so it hasn't come from an evolution of making trail all mountain bikes more aggressive to get an enduro bike. It's come by taking it back from a downhill bike, and I think that that range is a similar proposition, and I think it'd be cool to compare them. Yeah, like super enduro, super enduro. Yeah, right. What about Matt? Matt, is there a bike that we didn't have at the field test that you would have liked to have had here? There were a couple, yeah, that were on the list. Um, that new Da Vinci Spartan high pivot. I know that was a little bit later it released in the summer, but uh, if we could have got that earlier, that would have been sweet to have on on test. Um, or one of those super fancy Atherton enduro bikes. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see one of those in the flesh. Um, or that new Orbea Rallon. I know that came out recently too, but... Uh, and yeah, COVID restrictions and all that stuff has made supply a challenge. Next field test we do, and I know everyone's this is making more work for ourselves at this point. We're doing another one. <laughs> it starts in like two <laughs> weeks, so hopefully your request isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, with, uh. the, with the enduro bikes, we've compared to a previous field test winner, the Specialized Enduro. That seems to have gone quite, quite down, gone down quite well. Matt, you've been known to swing a leg over a downhill bike. You should bring your downhill bike next time and we'll get the optimum downhill bike time on the track. And then we can use that as a benchmark to then compare the enduro bikes to. Man, so I did actually I bring my downhill bike. It was there. Yeah, it was saw, in that yeah. room. Yeah, <laughs> how much How much was, time did you have to just jump on your downhill bike and go do a run for fun, though? <laughs> I was like negative time, <laughs> if that's existent. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought, oh, you know might be nice to bang out a lap or two and and yeah kind of have that benchmark of a downhill bike versus these bigger enduro bikes but yeah it was just a struggle to get enough time on them as it was that would be an interesting angle for sure um so now that we're home we've been home for i don't know is it a month or a couple days i don't even know but what which one of these field test bikes are you guys still riding what one do you still want to ride? Well, Henry and I have juggled back and forth between the the range and the spire, and I think both of them have really really good uh, benefits and are tailored to the places that we live right now. I'm on the shore. Henry's in Squamish, uh, and yeah, like I said, we've traded back and forth, and he's definitely asked for the spire back earlier. <laughs> why why do you prefer the spire? Me, I mean, I had so I had the shore, sorry, not the shore, the range, and it is an incredible bike. I actually took it around on a road trip around Interior BC on the holidays. It was the perfect bike for that sort of thing. It's absolutely amazing. Were you but just riding lifts looked, the whole time, <laughs> doing shuttle runs? I actually wasn't. We did some. We did several like two thousand 
climbing days, like back to back, like some big proper days on that bike. But when I look up over the mountains in Squamish and I think of that peanut butter, wet, sticky road, and Mm. I think of that 170 mil coil sprung, it just makes me want to weep. I'm just like, I'm not today, Satan. There is no way I'm pedaling <laughs> that Norco range up that hill anymore. It takes so, like, I don't care, but I found myself caring. I found myself going like, this is what people feel when they don't like climbing. Cause I really enjoy climbing. Right. Yeah. And I'm there just like, how, how like, how is this going so slowly? How am I going so slowly can, up this hill? And that, can I just, I just want to stop you right there and just underline the fact that while you like the range, you're basically saying that it climbs so slowly that it's enough that you don't want to ride the bike. In Squamish. If I was in Interior okay. BC, this is, honestly, we did, there's a trail, I don't know if you've ever ridden a trail called, like, Power Slave, and I think it's oh, like yeah. Nelson. Yeah, it's yeah. like 1,300 meters of just loam, rough, it's like the bottom of Alder Sol the whole way. Yeah. The perfect bike. And when you're on technical single track climbs, it's not half bad because there's so much grip afforded by, like, cool shock. But for Peanut Butter Avenue up there, there is no way in hell I want to do that as part of my daily routine. Just grinding. It's, it's just too much. Too much. Yeah, it's it's a big bike. I've ridden, like, I've ridden a couple of these bikes that you guys tested. I haven't ridden, but luckily most of them I have. And the range, yeah, I think I've, like, talk, hearing you guys say which one's riding which one, it'd be, for me, it'd be between the range and Aspire. But the range, you have to be, like, motivated. You have to have, like, a mission in mind. Like, I'm going to go to this peak and go down this trail with this where like the spire you could just be like i'm just gonna putz around do whatever and it doesn't matter but i do think that and that's what makes me i wanted to ask you guys you know we have the enduro category enduro bikes is supposed to be for enduro racing but if you had to do a full the full ews circuit like you know one season on it which bike would you pick because they all supposed to be magical enduro race bikes and i feel like some of them aren't actually yeah that was one of the questions that levy asked in the in the roundtable discussion was what bike you would pick to encompass all the EWS rounds, but you couldn't change it out. It had to be one bike. So I chose the specialized Enduro for that. Um, but it doesn't have some of the, you know, shining attributes that the range had for descending or the, the, we are one for like, it's just liveliness and, and be able to like get up and go. Um, and it just, it, kind of fit me it was light the geometry wasn't absolutely wild so you know you could tackle some of those more mellow single track climbs and stuff like that it kind of did everything well but there were definitely a bunch of bikes in our test that you know stood out in these uh, little corners of their own Mm -hmm. and i actually took the spire the spire was a really close one for me um as choosing one bike to kind of round it all out because it does have sort of a uh an aggressive enduro geo setting, but then also like what transition almost calls it is like their downhill geo with that chip that changes it to like 62 and a half degree head angle. But I actually took that to the chill Cotons on like a big, you know, mix up that we had Levy where I was oh, trying was to dog show. Yeah. I was trying to <laughs> the bike was here for you. <laughs> I know it's in my shop. Where's your shop? Uh, the garage looks like a shop, but there's no, we are one. And then you get this panic message. There's no bike here. Yeah. Anyways, I mixed up taking the We Are One to the Chilcotins. Luckily, still had the Spire with me. Uh, granted, it had downhill tires and everything. Matt, that's a pretty big bike to be riding around the Chilcotins. Tell me was. about that trip. Yeah. So I was trying to keep up with two buds that were on uh, very, very light bikes. And I, of course, put downhill tires on it to ride on the shore. And uh, luckily threw it on the rack. Going up to Squamish, 
trying to exchange this bike for the weird one that's in your garage and lo and behold yeah couldn't couldn't find it <laughs> so i took this bike anyways and um did two like 40 kilometer days on it and man it it did everything yeah it's like pretty mellow terrain out there but like you're just covering a lot of single track and it has the geometry to just allow you to pedal in a comfy position but i think this is one thing that people miss a lot too is like the tires really depict what the bike does so you could you could kind of have like uh, a spire with light tires and throw those on for like a trip like this or you could have the we are one as your only bike and then throw some downhill tires in it and go to the bike park and and uh same with the yt like same deal like you could throw downhill tires on it it could be pretty aggressive or go the other way and kind of have a, a lighter a lighter package trail bike because mike how many gravel bikes did you have for Matt to choose from if you wanted to well like we, I've, I've got 15 gravel bikes in here no cross-country mountain bike ah. <laughs> You probably see the same thing with uh, with gravel bikes. Like if you have six fifties with like beefy tires, versus you know a don't light get started, man. These, these people are here listening to me talk about curly bars. I guarantee you. But the same okay. thing kind of applies. Wait, the best thing is how uncomfortable they are, and don't get me started on how poorly they descend. God's sake. <laughs> like... I always say, you mountain bikers have no idea how good you have it. You climb up crappy fire roads and then you get to go down great trails gravel riders we climb up crappy fire roads and then we descend down crappy fire roads it's terrible i like how you okay, identify as a gravel rider now let's... You just took yourself out as a mountain biker yeah you know, just, that was it. Then. that's the end of levy i'm a part-time gravel rider okay yeah. uh, yeah. wait 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 let's keep this on field test here and before we get into a ton of bike details matt i did want to ask you about the impossible climb and what you thought of it well i thought it was going to be impossible <laughs> yeah it wasn't though was it no i mean we were riding up a technical blue single track descent trail yeah. and yeah of course you might come across one or two of these little features in a regular climb trail but it was just like bam bam one after another and you know it was maybe 30 seconds long but um it, it was near on impossible and you did yeah. make it on one bike though, which is yeah, perfect. It was. Yeah. And you know, we got a couple cracks at it with each bike and, um, I think the arrival did get up there on the second go. Yeah. And the YT was a pretty close one yeah. as well. Um, you did but... dab a few times. I just want you to know that <laughs> I've never dabbed never, during an ever. impossible climb. So you're going to have to raise your game. I'm pretty a sure bit. I sent a video of you dabbing with your face. <laughs> <laughs> Into a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> Tripod. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Kaz, I found a question underneath the field test article that I want to ask you and these guys here. Darkstar187 says, what are your thoughts on using a data system on the suspension of the field test bikes? to put some numbers behind what the testers are feeling. Um, now, just so everybody knows, how realistic is this? Can we, can we do this? <laughs> I, as, with our current setup, I'd say not possible. I think there is room for more like data stuff, but I also want to say that having used the motion instruments, um, data acquisition stuff before and like experiment with that, I think that translating that into something that people could watch and say like, this is the bike for me is a lot harder. 
Like just because the computer tells you to turn some knobs and that your rebound might not be the exact right thing, it's not really giving you the same feedback that you're going to get from people riding the bike and explaining how it felt. Like, I think there's a time and a place for like data and like harder science like that. But in these field tests, I think that back to back is really what's giving you like the, the, uh, the experience and the able, the ability to like turn that into words where if you just look at some of these plots and things, like I've ridden bikes where I did what the motion instruments was recommending. I didn't like what it recommended. So does that, it, it kind of brings a different factor into the equation so i don't know i, I do think there's some mm-hmm. we can always improve these and add some more stuff but um given the limited time constraints of these it'd, it'd be a lot of work to have to install that on every bike and go real deep yeah and that's part of the process too in testing um is getting comfy in a quick amount of time on a bike and if it's harder to set up a bike then that kind of says something a lot of these companies do have um little website details that do help you get to a, a really good starting point yeah that that brings me to my next question. This is also from Darkstar. He wants to know how much setup time you guys are putting into these bikes. Um, I think it, like Matt said, it really does depend on the bike. So, I mean, for me, with the Fox stuff, I would tend to use their base settings, which are actually normally there or thereabouts. And I mean, going from like the Zeb equipped bikes to the 38 equipped bikes, it's, you know, it's not like each bike has a different fork as well. So you can actually pretty much i mean sometimes you might tweak depending if it's got a particularly kind of telling characteristic at the in the rear but largely it is just setting up the rear suspension um and you know a big thing for me which we might talk about we've definitely talked about in the past is cockpit setup um and how sometimes you know getting that just right but largely you can get the setup pretty quick the only bike i say that i struggled to find a good setup window quickly on was the capra everything else to be honest, was pretty much plug and play. Um, not saying it couldn't be refined, but it was like, you know, going off sag, going off kind of base settings and things like that. And it got you pretty close to where you'd want to be. And like Matt said, it's a it's a telling thing to how easy the bike is to set up. That's actually really important as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of a good way to check. When the bikes have been released, like the testers can look at the, the company's website if they have a little helpful buyer like a setup guide and stuff some companies have those sometimes these bikes haven't been released yet so it's not really possible to check that out but um yeah and another thing for for everyone listening like all of us have been testing bikes for a long time so we've kind of got our setup process a little bit quicker than it might be for a lot of people like most people don't have to set up you know 12 to 20 bikes for themselves every year but we're for us we do that so it is kind of a little bit the process is a little bit more sped up i would say Okay, I want to start talking about specific bikes, and I want to start with the big Norco range. We joked a lot about how the range was practically a downhill bike, Matt, but how close is it? Like, surely over over like a proper downhill track, the range is slower than a real downhill bike, right? What's What is the difference for those people between a full-on long-travel enduro bike and a real downhill bike? Can you tell us? Yeah, so it's definitely definitely comes down to the travel, and the range has 170 mils front and rear. Um, we have seen that bike in some other configuration. Norco won't allude to it, unfortunately. I really want to know, but they have we have seen it on the uh, World Cup circuit with a dual crown fork um, and maybe some different shock configuration and different linkage. But the limiting factor is is definitely the travel, and on this bike. In particular, I think it's the fork and the brakes that can't, no, I can't say it won't keep up with the rest of the bike, but if you had a dual crown with some bigger brakes, um, 
I think you could go even faster on this bike and it wouldn't be due to the geo or the rear suspension that would slow you down. It would more so be the front of the bike. Um, yeah, just having like a little bit more, you know, support or, um, mm -hmm. confidence with that dual crown fork. Do you think Matt, if this was your own bike, not necessarily at 200 mil of travel, but do you think that there would be a time where you'd be looking to put a 40 on there and run it at 170 or, or 180? Yeah. So I've actually looked at, you know, I'd like to have one of these as my own bike. And like I alluded to before, I think it'd be really cool. Um, you could do sort of two bikes with this. If, uh, they ever release the DH configuration, you could almost have like your single crown, double down casing wheel setup, and then like DH tires and a dual crown setup. And that could be like almost a downhill race bike, but then you could also have a bike for, um, more burly local trails or just having more fun in the bike park. Um, and then on the other side, you know, if you had like a smaller bike, um, with like XC tires and then conversely, like heavier tires, you kind of have two bikes with three or four different setups. Um, do you, do you think though, that the 40 is kind of, sorry, the 38 is a really interesting proposition because a lot of these bikes are pedaling. I'd quite happily have a Lyric, you know, I don't actually need that big belly fork. And then going to the other end, it doesn't sound like that there's enough of a benefit to not to, to take away from the 40 either. So if we look at the weight of something like a 38, it's actually quite comparable to a boxer. Is there an argument, do you think, of actually that these Zebs, these 38s, they actually kind of promise the world the ultimate compromise, but actually they might not deliver either. Because I think for me, the perfect bike would be the Spire, but with a Lyrica 36, because I only pedal it. And if we're talking about bike park bikes and making it a downhill bike, then we're talking about putting a, a proper downhill fork on it. So it seems to be not one nor the other. What do you think? I think that's pretty interesting because you, you can even bump up the Zeb to 190 mil, right? Um, I think I think what kind of holds those, those single crown forks back is the trade-off you have for weight versus the steering input stiffness. And a lot of people might argue it's just like the difference in the bars, but I think you do get some inherent stiffness or even just that perceived confidence from having a wider bolt-on stem and a dual crown fork. Mm -hmm. I would say just the fact that we're even having this discussion about the Norco speaks volumes for what they've made here like we're, we're talking about this enduro bike and we're like hey matt would you put a long longer travel dual crown fork on there and race it in a downhill and you're like yeah i don't know probably like turn it turn it into a downhill bike but that bike was not the quickest down our test track does that mean our test track wasn't rowdy enough matt why wasn't that norco range the quickest when you when you did time testing well, I think yeah, a lot of people were kind of biting at this on in the comments that our our track wasn't, you know, gnarly enough, but it was used in an enduro race before. And I think it's, yeah, pretty similar to other, other tracks that I've raced in EWS races. And you do have to kind of cover all your bases uh, with the test track. And I think it had, I think it had fast enough sections uh, with a good variety of turns tech places where you had to carry speed and the range was really good in those open bits it was maybe the tighter 
consecutive turns um, that slowed it down just a touch. Mm -hmm. And maybe the lengthening wheelbase, I think, uh, just kind of mutes some of the, the speed that you pump out of turns with. Oh, this just kind of goes sort of like the point that I was saying before, where we we're talking about if you would, which bike you would use for the EWS, like it's such a huge range of bikes, no pun intended, but if you took the range and say like the Rocky mountain altitude, that's like, they're both supposed to be for enduro racing, but they're so different and it would depend on really the course. Like if you're going to race Whistler, which is rowdy and they have tracks where that range would feel great. Or if you're going to race some weird thing in Italy or Scotland or something where it's super tight and you know, winding around. I think it's a interesting choice for the, the end consumer to try to decide what their riding style, like what they prefer, basically. Hey, Henry, I've, I've picked out a comment here from PB user Chaka Ping. This is about the transition spire. He says, hi, transition. If you're reading this, please ignore the reviewer's comments about the brake hose and keep it external. You clearly oh, no. already know the score. Oh, no. I agree with him. Oh, what, what can I say? He's no, you d no, 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 no. It's oh god. Sorry, let me, let me take a moment. It's it looks worse. It's what we're saying on the filters. It's not a maths problem. Don't show your working. I don't want to see the hose straddled over the frame. I want it tucked away. But who cares it how looks it looks better. when you have to swap one out? It's it so is, annoying after like undo the little fittings and do all the stuff. How often? How often do you swap your brakes? Couple well, times I a test day. things. Yeah, like for testing. <laughs> like, I'm just being selfish as an editor that okay. has to test things. I want it to yeah, be real exactly. easy. So, so I like for it. you. Uh-huh. It's for, ideal. Yeah, for you, it might be. It might be. But, you know, for, I think for your average consumer who gets on a bike, enjoys riding it, doesn't really swap out brakes. And I don't understand this, like, I don't know. No, it's just, it's just not me, man. It's just not me. Because when you when you put on brakes anyway, you're already having to chop down lines to make it neat. Like it's it's actually doesn't really doesn't do anything at all. I just think it's a I just think make a bike, it's an expensive thing. It should look gorgeous. It should be like clean and tidy. I don't want bloody zip ties hanging off my down tube. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, We're gonna leave it there. You. Yeah, I'll leave you there. You can have your opinion. I don't agree. <laughs> I'm not too picky. <laughs> I'm definitely like, because also the thing that pisses me off is not, is not only, hear me out, if they made the routing so I could have, having it non-internally guided would mean at least I could have like my two, my two things together and it'd be neat because I run my brakes the wrong way around as we always talk about. Mm -hmm. Now, if that wasn't the case, then at least I could have it external but neat. But now I've just got, it's like the spaghetti junction. There are just cables everywhere and it just upsets me. Once wireless brakes comes out, you'll be all set. Yeah, go lift soon, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <Wireless> tomorrow. <laughs> Review tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. I've got a question for Matt. So we're back from the field test. It sounds like you want to pick up a range for yourself. And I'm just curious as to why you're leaning more towards the range than the spire. Because on paper, I mean that spire looks more well-rounded. The geometry could be made even slacker, which knowing you might be something that you would like. So I'm just curious as to why you would reach for the range before that spire. That would be a tricky one. And I have ridden both on my local trails and I do have uh, the benefit of having smaller bikes in my fleet as well. So if I was going to have a burlier bike, it would be the range because I would have something smaller to fall back on for those more pedally days. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the range for what I ride is normally like 
an easy paved road pedal to the top or we shuttle and then maybe do some quicker pedals up on the road to connect to another trail. And those trails are super steep, full of the nastiest square edge rock and who knows what you're going to find. <laughs> you're, from... you're, you're actually not looking for the most versatile long travel enduro bike then it sounds like. No, it's, it's extremely specific. Right. Yeah. And the, and the range tailors to that. But like I said, I think with different tires and maybe, um, some components to suit your local terrain, it can be more adaptable than what I'm just perceiving. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Henry, you've fallen in love with that Spire. What kind of changes would you make to that bike? If any, uh, don't tell me about brake hoses. I don't need to hear about brake hoses. <laughs> drill a hole and run it through. And... Turn over and... Yeah. <laughs> I'll Something get else. <laughs> no, um, if, you know, I'm actually really happy with it as it is. I think I think it's a great bike. The changes that I have made, though, have been um, inserts, lighter tires and inserts, and I would love to have a Lyric on there. I think I just pedal around. I don't ride anything too rowdy. Um, I think, yeah. I think a lyric for me is is a great fork and it's yeah. a bit lighter too. So you're going the opposite direction than Matt. Yeah, I mean, I think if like Squamish, the riding's really good. It's really, really, really good. And although we do have rough trails, it's not like downhill World Cup track rough. It's like engaging. There are some nice rock rolls, but a lot of the really good trails are actually quite soft dirt that are just really loamy and fun. And I mm. don't think you're really pushing the Zeb anywhere near its limit, let alone the lyric. What do you think of the bottom bracket height on that bike, Henry? Like I, when I rode it, I noticed that I was glad it had the short cranks, but I also realized there's no way you would ever want to run longer cranks. It comes with 165. So I feel like, so what did you think? Did that, does that bother you? Do you like the short cranks? Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I really like short cranks. I am. Um, I would take 160s any day of the week. Um, but that's actually not because of descending. That's just because. That would feel terrible. <laughs> it's because you have no, really tiny legs. I've got about <laughs> tiny legs. <laughs> yeah i've got a really tiny 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 legs um no because i've got a bad hip like basically anything that brings the crank up less into my body basically alleviates the symptoms of that mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean for me the the bottom bracket height with the 165s was fine i don't think i want to go longer cranks but i think bottom bracket height's one of those things that whatever it is you do just learn it and you learn to kind of self-regulate when you go for it certainly when i got on it i was like this is this is certainly quite quite low but you know you, you you do get used to it pedal strikes are always rider air no matter how low the bottom bracket is yeah that's the spirit i mean yeah. I'm into- <laughs> i mean crashing is always rider <laughs> air too right like i mean <laughs> definitely <laughs> sometimes <laughs> i mean yeah there's something to be said there for the short cranks we've seen some xc riders even move to 165s if they're you know at a around five foot high or whatever and i think there's something to be said there with our e-bike uphill challenge that like yeah the more you could keep those cranks turning over and keep like a nice cadence you got more traction as opposed to like longer cranks where you have to ratchet through tech climbs and it wasn't there wasn't as much trade like payoff for that kind of move I, I think is there um, any science behind all this crank length stuff? I feel like all the well, roadies always argue about it. Well, British Cycling, who oh. are like super nerds, mm. did. Uh, hey, well, you asked. You asked. <laughs> go ahead. Keep, keep going. They basically find that there wasn't a discernible difference between crank, crank length because because we have gearing, right? 
because you will just find you have your power output and you're going to find the gear that works for you i mean i think and it's only this is complete conjecture and this is the least scientific thing ever perfect for pink bike i feel on flat pedals having shorter cranks is slightly nicer i think having your feet kind of more underneath you and in your kind of level position having your, your feet one foot so far back it kind of helps you well it helps me at least get my heel lower around the axle of the crank right. uh, axle of the pedal which keeping your feet on helps. also there are a lot of pointy rocks in squamish just waiting to grab you yeah i mean i only ride half nelson as you know uh yeah that's all, <laughs> all i ride so. i only ride half nelson on my gravel bike so i'm right there with you <laughs> <laughs> no for sure i mean especially there there is that type of terrain i mean especially if you go up grizzly meadows and stuff like that there's some horrible old jank that you know you you, you do notice that the old grabs of the cranks but you get used to it right right okay let's talk about the old gt force now so this bike looks a lot like the previous force except it has an idler pulley on there now um generally speaking do you guys think it's fair to say that there was less interest in the force with an idler than there was in the Norco range with an idler, they're both the same kind of thing. Why do you why do you think you guys were so much more interested in the range than the GT? I think the Norco did have a bit of hype around it. And I think that it had been on the World Cup circuits, it had been taken from pictures underneath tailgates. It had it had <laughs> the full the full you know, all the weapons that, that could be utilized to make a hype around a bike. Interesting enough, the GT did really surprise me, and it's a bike that I really 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 enjoyed riding i think if i had to have one for my own bike around in here in squamish yada 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 as one bike i could be tempted to go for the gt over the norco i feel like you complained a ton about that bike in person when we were there or maybe that was just Uh, the handlebars and the stem it was the handlebars and the stem are absolutely rotten i i think i don't know what they would do with that um i think that there's some very peculiar we spoke about this. There's a weird suspension action going on just uh, on the brakes in slower speed stuff. It feels like I've actually spoke to an uh, somebody who's basically designing an engineer at another company. And he was saying that with these high pivot bikes, the point in, in the travel, like the inflection point, that the rear wheel begins to go forward. Where that is and, and how it happens can have a very interesting effect on suspension. So I don't necessarily know if it's something like that, but it did feel like when you were modulating your brakes through high speed stuff, it was fantastic. But if it did hang up, it would give a really kind of peculiar feeling, which you got used to. But compared to the Norco, which was absent of this trait, it, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's the Norco is a bit easier to ride. Right. Matt, you really like that Norco. You picked it over the GT. Similar-ish suspension layouts, high-ish idlers, a bunch of travel, slack angles. Why are you reaching for the Norco before that GT? And is it because the seat tube is really long? It was, actually. I got on the GT and rode it pretty quick uh, on the first lap and was impressed with it. But once I got into a little bit like steeper, tighter terrain, um, some of those corners I couldn't quite get low enough on the bike and it just kind of drove me forwards which was not scary like i knew it was there but uh the norco i had a lot more more room to move around the bike even though the reach is about the same on both of those i know it's a really unfashionable thing to say but my word i'd love to try that norco with an air shock 
I think the the breakaway forces needed to get that air shock into its travel actually sometimes goes a long way to providing something like a pedaling platform. And I think it would just stop that feeling that feels like it's like vacuumed to the ground because it's got so much grip. But on pedaling... the feeling of speed, Henry. Go faster. I mean, I can't... My little legs will only go me so fast up these hills, Michael. I can't do it, man. (laughs) I just can't do it. Uh, Fair enough. You did call it a park bike, though. Mm. Why is it more of a park bike than an enduro bike in your mind? Defend the, yourself. The, the GT. Yeah. Because the way it, the way it tracks at speed is quite amazing. You know, we look at something like the Benchmark Enduro, Specialized Enduro. The two over fast, rough chatter are worlds apart. What GT have managed to do for all its peculiarities under braking that I experienced and it, how it could be slightly unwieldy in, um, in slower speed stuff, plus the elements of the longer seat tube, which depending on your stature might be more or less of a problem. Once it goes fast, this thing feels incredibly planted and it's um, it's an absolute joy to ride at medium to high speed. The faster it goes, the better it gets. Yeah, I'd really like to have a go on the GT, maybe in the smaller size where I had more room on the seat tube, but then also put a coil shock on it. I saw most of the setups from the GT factory team. Uh, most Most riders, except for Martin Mays, I think, were riding coil shocks. I think the GT was like a bit, bit of an ugly duckling in that test. Yeah, I would I would agree. Honestly, like I think if we're going to be frank about it, Norco has done a really good job with their bikes and their marketing over the past two, three, four years, Kaz. And the GT doesn't have that same sort of cool vibe going for it that the, that the Norco does, does it? Yeah, I mean, there's something about looks too. You know, like the the Norco is like a new, completely new look for it, and the GT kind of feels like you've seen it before. A lot of it because you have. They started teasing because we have. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of that people, it's kind of familiarity. You're like, oh, I've seen that. Okay, I know. Even if you don't, because it is obviously a different bike. But um, one thing I wanted to say with the seat tube, uh, not even an argument, the seat tube point that you guys made that I totally agree with. There are some people in the comments that would say, oh, he's riding down it just fine. The seat tube's no issue. Like it's not a big deal, but I think people don't realize that that little, the ability to drop your seat all the way out of the way is so crucial on these bikes, especially as seat tubes get steeper. Henry mentioned it in one of the videos. And I'd, I'd love to see all these bikes, especially in a size large, come with 200 mil dropper posts. Like you can, you can shim them so that you don't have all the drop if you don't want. But I think it's, it's still frustrating that not enough companies have got 200 mil posts on the larger bikes. Yeah. I noticed there were a handful of comments and some reviews sort of saying that our testers were on the wrong size bikes because the seat tubes were a bit long and that that's actually incorrect. So we're, we're sizing these bikes through reach and we're on the recommended size for the rider's heights. And I think it was the GT and the commensal Metapower guys that both had seat tubes that were definitely too long. And some people were saying comments like, Oh, if the seat tubes too long, then the bike is the wrong size, but that's not the case. I don't think. No. But that's kind of a hang up of the way that we used to size bikes, right? Like, yeah. Oh, my 17 inch or whatever. Yeah. Yep. No, I, th- I think that the Norco, what the Norco managed to do that perhaps the GT doesn't, is although it's this big, brutish bike, it it's actually, it's more sophisticated than its numbers would suggest. It actually is, is a lot going on. It's like finding like Nelson Muntz likes Mozart or something like that. It's more than just a schoolyard bully. It's a really, really good bike. And I think the GT Simpsons does feel... reference. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I like how you had the last the, name in there. The, the GT. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the GT is more of a, um, 
is more is actually in some ways more of a brute than the Norco. It doesn't have that same doesn't have the same sensitive side, you could say. That Lisa does her best to extract, but we all know how that ended up. Not Breaks good. Her heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That she also yeah. broke Ralph Wiggum's heart. Uh, oh, yeah. poor Ralph Wiggum. Oh, Who, who's, who's Ralph Wiggum in this field test? <laughs> I choo choo choose you. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute am i ralph wiggum i think so <laughs> leafy could be a little pink okay man. let's oh god <laughs> let's let's talk about the we are one arrival next and i'm going to start this off with a pink bike comment from malo balo pb user malo balo he says pink bike reviews ten thousand dollar yeti comment section says expensive blah 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 a bunch of bad words dentists assholes pink bike reviews canadian made we are one made just down the road, but cost $10,000. Comment section, great bike, way to go, so pretty. Here are 10 reasons why whoever dared saying it's expensive is an ignorant asshole. So the point is, we are one kind of got, they got away free, like with it, with it being a super expensive bike, there was less complaints about it. Um, why do you guys think that is? I think people don't, People don't resent expensive things flat out. They ex- they resent mainstream things that are particularly expensive. So if you're getting something boutique, there are expensive restaurants that you know can you can have your caviar and your lobster and pay through the nose for it. And people aren't annoyed about that. But what they are annoyed is if you tried to charge, you know, fifty five dollars for a burger, they'd be a bit like, sorry, what? This is just a burger. And I think there's an element of that to it. Another PB comment. This one's from Dan's 88. He says, you know what's ironic? The fastest bikes uphill also appear to be the fastest downhill. And yet we're told long travel this, high pivot that. Matt Beer, what do you think of that? I thought about this one quite a bit after the time testing. And I think it comes down to one, the gradient. Yeah, we were on, we weren't racing downhill bikes on downhill tracks. We were racing or timing enduro bikes on enduro tracks. And if you do want to point those down downhill tracks, they can do it, but the shorter travel bikes, you're going to get more fatigued earlier than the longer travel ones or like the, the longer wheelbase ones as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you'll see those start to shine in like a longer timed section. And I think that it's also worth pointing out that the, like the Yeti SB150, the person that's making that bike have some impressive results on the EWS. Like if you're Richie rude, you can get away with a shorter travel bike, but not everybody's Richie rude. Not everybody's even Matt beer. So sometimes it's nice to have that extra margin for error. You know, that little extra travel, that extra angles to help you make mistakes and still get away with it. Where like that. We are one. If you're in a super, super rough trail, fully pinned, you kind of have to be on your line. You can't just let it go. Like you could with the range. Say, yeah, I was, I was definitely going to allude to that a bit more too. Like if you look at BMX bikes, and BMX racers, like those men and women are super fit, but they're only racing for about a minute and they're on the smallest bikes because they're the most agile and responsive. But if you look at a downhill bike, um, there, I think there's a wider range of people that can ride a downhill bike on big terrain comfortably than a smaller bike where like a person like Richie Rude or the top EWS racers are super fit and also super skilled and can maximize that smaller bike more. I think also the idea of going to longer travel or bigger bikes is underpinned by this 
by the idea that like we're here to represent something that is basically going to be quite versatile and also essentially good value for money because wouldn't our jobs be easier if we just said right okay so the bikes you actually want is you want a 100 mil travel bike you probably want a 130 mil bike you want a 170 mil bike and you want a downhill bike but obviously that wouldn't be right so we've got to say here is this 170 mil bike that you can do everything from your local trails you can take it to the alps or whistler and you can pedal it and so it's actually about you know giving people good value and, and actually <laughs> and helping advise people about what is the most versatile bike. You can still climb these bikes. They might not be as sprightly. They might smother the life out of some trails. But if you come to some really rowdy stuff, it's going to increase that element of versatility. Mm -hmm. So for the next field test, Matt Beer is going to do an EWS event on each of the bikes. And that way we know over (laughs) over an entire weekend of racing, which bike is quickest. Matt, obviously you're not going to do that, but... The point is, our test track was how many minutes long, and you did a handful of runs on each bike, but over a weekend of enduro racing, is it fair to say that you think the results might be different with time testing? We oh. take fatigue and all that into account. I mean, that would be interesting because, yeah, our track was three minutes, just below three minutes for every bike. Mm-hmm. And as I learned the track, it was consistent. But over a whole weekend, I guess you'd be looking at a much more diverse section selection of terrain. So right. it depends. Yeah, I guess it would depend on the course to see which bike would actually come out on top and if the fatigue would be a factor on the you know shorter travel or uh, less aggressive geo bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've got a question for you, Kaz. This is an expensive bike. Would you buy one with your own money? The we are one, um, yeah. I, I I wouldn't, but I've never had. I also like if I made that kind of money to be looking at that kind of bike, maybe I would. Like, there's people that have tons of money, so I think that to be for someone, it's gonna be a great bike. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the performance of that bike that much. You know, if you take that that price point versus another mass produced bike, is the performance difference that great? I mean, that's a different question, but I I do think it's cool what they've created. It's awesome that they have like the locally sourced angle to that story um you know it's it's carbon made in canada and there's not really anyone else kind of doing it to the level yeah. that they are so i think it's cool and if people can support them and can afford to support support them i think it's cool too um it's not like the specialized and giants and tracks of the world have to worry about we are one like taking their piece of pie it's they've got their own little niche now and i, I just think it's cool to see how they're growing it mm-hmm. yeah i think for a lot of people that interesting story is partly what sells the bike for sure. Let's, let's talk about our fastest bike, the YT Capra, the bike that some of you guys didn't like that much, but it ended up being the fastest. <laughs> Matt, what did you think of that one? Why, why was that bike the quickest? And is it, is it a bike that you would go enduro racing on? It is definitely an enduro bike and I definitely could race it. Uh, it would just take maybe a little bit more time to get it set up um, to, to suit all the types of terrain like on the smoother more jump trails it was it was really fun to ride and it was responsive even for a 165 mil travel bike but i think it went fastest similar to the we are one in time because it was a little bit shorter wheelbase uh it was they're both also the the two lighter ones in test and it just allowed me to maximize all my efforts in that three minutes mm-hmm Whereas like we talked about, you know, I think fatigue would set in on a more 
on a longer track or something that was a pure downhill racetrack, I think you'd definitely see either the spire or the range kind of take over there. Right. Henry, can can you tell me why you didn't like this bike? That's the impression uh, I got. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with with the Norco, the Transition, the GT, I actually rode them all a lot, including the YT, a lot around Squamish. And, you know, we were, we were talking earlier on how it's nothing too gnarly. There is some, there is some proper gnarly, gnarly stuff, should you want to go run it out. And if ever was the top of a blind run that I'd never done before, and it was wet, and I was thinking, this could get a bit spicy. If I was on the Norco, the GT, or the Transition, I was like, it's okay, because you're on this bike. If I was on the YT, I'd go, remember, you're, you're on you're on the YT here. And that mm-hmm. was the difference. The other bikes would say, remember, you're going to be okay because this is going to get you out alive. The YT, it'd be like, now, don't do anything stupid because it just quite simply wasn't as forgiving for me. It wasn't as stable. I, we talked about the sizing terminology maybe being a little bit off. I'd actually quite like to try the XL, um, a bit longer reach and also goes to a four mil longer rear end. I'm not sure how much difference that would make in terms of, all the time but i think having that bigger bike it might make it feel just a bit more stable and planted when things got a bit rough and wild yeah would would you say that one feels kind of almost closer to a trail bike than an enduro bike even though it has all the travel it feels a little more like in that kind of aggressive trail bike zone all mountain we could call all mountain bike absolutely yeah all mountain that's what i was gonna say i agree i know well i rode it i actually came up to squamish and i took this bike because it's still kicking around i took it for a, a ride that was fairly gnarly and I kind of agree with Henry. Like I liked it in a lot of instances, but there's also times like, oh, this feels like a little bike. Like I was like, found myself doing little hop arounds and kind of goofy things. I was like, that's because this bike, I think a lot has to do with the sizing, like you mentioned, and just feels more compact. Some of the things you guys said while riding it too made me wonder if it would be better with a slightly more active shock tune. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as Matt was saying earlier on, how, easier bikers to set up you know is really important i think maybe the problem with the yt was there maybe wasn't enough tinkering it's a need a bike you need to ride solely and i did actually manage to get it set up a little bit better funnily enough subsequently after field test it still wasn't as supple as the other bikes but it wasn't as harsh did you use that huge range of geometry adjustment (laughs) i did actually (laughs) I was actually swapping Stupid. it somewhere. Sometimes I was changing that geometry three or four times a run. Just go, oh, there's a rock roll. Going to put it in slack. <laughs> right. Oh, climb, come in. Get the Allen key. Point three so degrees. For, for those that don't know, yeah, yeah. like a we'll lot get of you these a bikes. Quick release lever. Yeah. Quick release geometry adjust. A Rocky Mountain used to have that. What yeah, bike it was, was on that, the, ETS, the ETSX. ETSX had a quick release and you could switch between three positions that were on the rocker link. Yeah. That bike had a huge range of adjustment. I got to say, so YT is by far not the only company with tiny 0.3 millimeter or 0.3 of a degree adjustment, but it's, it's dumb. Just stop it. We need lots more of adjustment if you're going to have the adjustment there. Um, on the other hand, though, Kaz, that adjustment could be used to tune the bike for a different rear wheel size, I guess, couldn't it? Yeah. I mean, it does make a change. Have- but I'm with you. It doesn't make a difference. Like- but they've got, they've got the MX platform. So, and that comes with a different rear end. Oh. And I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, like I want a supersized Big Mac, supersized fries, supersized McFlurry and a Diet Coke. It's like, what, what go all in, <laughs> just yeah. like, get cracking, you know? Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think the YT, it's, 
it's just a very it's it's not a bad thing but as we alluded to it, it feels a bit short of travel and it you know i joked about i've joked about this before but like it's just like it's like a ford mondeo it's just a pretty ordinary bike that's very conservative but what's interesting is like it's not a problem that's a Ford Mondeo. A Ford Mondeo is a great car, but it's just the fact that it's made by a company that talks like it's Lamborghini. <laughs> We're just some crazy guys. What are we going to do next? We're going to make the most conservative geometry and point through adjustment and angle. It's like, what? Like you're talking, it's like, you know, when the Motley crew are like, we're going to beat up guys. And then they're there doing their hairspray and their leopard skin trousers. And you just think, <laughs> this is a this is a lot of effort you're putting into cultivating this image. Why not just actually make the music? Why not just actually make the bike radical? And then you've got like Norco and Transition and GT who have images as being, maybe definitely would say with Norco and GT, are being a bit more straight-laced and being a bit more like, oh, hello. And then it turns out, you know, they're just they're doing the actual thing. They're not telling you they're doing the thing. They're doing the thing. And that's so much better. Yeah. 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 Like when the Capra, <laughs> Capra first came out, it was that big, long travel beast of a bike. And it was like, oh, the Capra, and it, you know, had the affordable price point and stuff. But now it's kind of like getting passed over by everyone else is like, oh, we could do this and push it a little further. And it still works really well. Okay. We have to talk about some EMTBs at this point in the podcast. Now, there were definitely some people that were bummed that we had some EMTBs, some e-bikes at the field test, which is fair. But Casimir, can you explain why we had e-bikes at the field test? Sure. Um, and I'll also say, I don't know why people be bummed because it's really easy to not look at e-bike content. It's always funny when people get sad. I don't, you know, that's a different rant. I won't even go on that rant. But why we had e-bikes is because a bunch of new ones have come out in the last couple of years and they exist and you're going to see them around. And if you're interested, you might as well know which ones are worth looking at, which ones are, you know, we're going to be covering e-bikes going forward as well. So we kind of need to stay up to date on what's happening in that world, whether or not, you know, we fully support e-bikes or not. So that's why we got these. We try to get the crop of like the latest, um, you know, the things that are show a good example of what, what happens and what's existing in that e-bike world now. So that's why we had the, the lighter weight Kinevo SL, which is kind of one of those, not quite all the power, but it has the geometry that specialized in duro um, and then the other ones were all full power unfortunately we weren't able to get as many motors uh, motor options this year as we wanted we just had the specialized motor and the shimano ep8 uh, the bosch stuff just wasn't available so hopefully next time around we can maybe get bosch and maybe some other options in there mm -hmm. let's talk about that specialized to begin with this was a relatively lightweight e-bike i think with the range extender it was 44 ish pounds if i'm remembering that right i'm sure somebody will tell me in the comments if it's not um generally speaking guys is this an approach to e-biking that makes sense to you like matt would you take this lightweight e-bike over something like that massive norco personally i well it's tough it depends on quite a few things i mean the sl the kinevo sl was quite a bit more expensive than any of the other bikes on test. And it also depends how long you're gonna ride for, who you're gonna ride with, and what sort of assistance level you're looking for because it definitely provided a different ride experience, both on uphill, flat, and downhill. Like the uphill, you know, you couldn't ramp up the same extreme climbs as the full power e-bikes. And then along flat, uh, you're definitely not carrying the same speed either because of the power output. And then does it descend like a like an enduro bike though, or a downhill bike? It definitely descended more like a traditional enduro bike than, or even more like a traditional downhill bike. I would say because of that 
lower center of gravity, but it didn't have that extra 10 pounds of battery or what I described as like that freight train chasing you where you're just trying to slow down the bike. I mean, you see a lot of people, a lot of pros out there in their spare time, like rallying these e-bikes, but they take a lot of commitment to throw into a corner and a lot of skill. Mm -hmm. Well, as somebody that's absent of both, let me just speak up there. So, (laughs) you know, with the... With the Specialized, it's a really, really good bike. And I think with some of these e-bikes, you know, it's like it's like strapping a house brick to a swallow, right? The characteristic of it stops being how it moves through the air and starts to be that it pulls out the skull, you know? <laughs> I, I just love how you describe these They just these gain things. speed <laughs> so quickly. And it's like and the overwhelming characteristic soon begins to be, depending which trail you're on, depending how much traction you've got, that this thing goes very quickly down whatever you point at. The cool thing with the Specialized was actually alleviated that. And when you really notice it, it's not only the way it gains speed or or doesn't because of that big heavy motor dragging it down the hill, but when you're leaning it. Because even though that battery is low down, it's still, it's still weight in the frame. And when you begin to lean that like big battery Norco, you, you know, you know you're leaning it. It's um, It wants to just lie down. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a couple of the things that we liked about the Specialized, and then we're not getting out of here without talking about that broken crank and another thing that we didn't like. So first off, when it comes to e-bikes, I think we can all agree that the majority of people, they're doing a pretty piss poor job of integration at this point. Little wires everywhere, stupid little plastic displays attached to your handlebar, stuff like that. Specialized, on the other hand, uh, they've got their mastermind display. It's integrated into the top tube. It gives you a percentage number instead of just bars. So it tells you more important information. There are less wires. I think there still is a control wire on one side of the handlebar, but there's just less stuff going on. Um, Is it fair to say, Kaz, that Specialized is really nailing this e-bike integration at this point? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that mastermind unit, it just make, makes sense. Like it's not, doesn't distract you when you don't want to look at it. So it's not on your handlebars. Like I personally don't like seeing electronic mm-hmm. stuff on my handlebars, but this way you can just take a look down see your battery. And there's a bunch of different menu options. You can have it show your miles per hour, your elevation, your all kinds of other stuff. And, and even you're talking about their wire, the, the wires they do use are bigger than the, the uh, Shimano wires. Like the Shimano wires are so tiny, so they can cut easily if you happen mm-hmm. to. Which you have done. Yeah, doing some like ham-fisted mechanicing and then slice through one or, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Specialized has nailed it in that in that regard. It just kind of seems like how the future should go where things are kind of part of the bike. It's all one thing. Where the other ones, it's it's tricky because Specialized, they have their own like e-bike division over in Switzerland that can like work on this integration where a lot of these other companies are kind of at the whim of Shimano or, or Bosch or whoever where they have, they get this thing and they have to figure out how to get it into their bike where Specialized can take a little different approach and I think it's paid off. We complained a bit about some uh, knocking from the Shimano EP8 motor that we're gonna we're gonna talk about later on. Um, but the specialized motor does something different. It has a bit of a whine noise to it. When I rode the bike, I thought it was pretty loud. Kaz, I know you're of the opinion that it's not really that loud. No, that's not my Matt opinion. Matt and Henry. At all. That's oh, it isn't. That's totally oh. not my opinion. No. There's two different oh, motors. No, no. There's two different motors that Specialized uses. In the full power Levo, that motor is belt driven, super quiet. Probably one of the quietest e-bike motors out there. On this bike, the one you guys had, the Kinevo SL, it's a gear driven motor and it's super loud and super annoying. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Matt Henry, 
did you guys also find it annoying? And Henry, can you give me your impression of the noise? The noise was, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was actually funny. Me and Matt went for a ride and I was going full tilt on the e-bike, on the, on the Specialized. And he was basically just spinning his legs on the Norco. And I'm there, red faced, dripping in sweat. And also sounded like I was like a mosquito chasing him up the hill. Yeah. Like it's just, and it's, it's not so present in the lower modes, but if you go to the high torque settings, it is a bit Bob Dylan-esque. That's how I describe it. <laughs> yeah. <It's> Dylan esque. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> it's, 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 you get used to it, but yeah. but you're there for other reasons, not just for the not just for the voice, you know? Yeah. Kaz, do we know why they use those gears instead of a belt? Is there a reason that we're putting up with this noise? I think it's to make that motor smaller is would be my guess. I'm not sure the exact reason, but they, the whole package is a lot smaller. So you have to kind of fit it in a different space. So, um, yeah, I just imagine that getting rid of that belt lets you make a smaller yeah. unit. So yeah, it's definitely a trade off that I don't know if ever, some people probably don't mind, but like on the Levo, the regular one with the, the belt driven one, you can ride behind people and they might not even notice you're on an e-bike, but there's no hiding the fact that you're on an e-bike if you're on this one. Well, you know, what we also have to talk about <sighs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. That, that crank braking. So the bike comes with Praxis cranks. Jason is doing the huck to flat. Um, that video, if you guys haven't seen it, Jason's ankle takes a beating. His foot folds right over. The crank breaks about three quarters way down towards Can the I pedal. Can I just say how yeah. well that 29 inch wheel rolls over his foot? That's what you don't get with smaller wheel sizes. That's right. <laughs> the attack angle is perfect. It's just yeah. really good. That contact patch, it's magic. Yeah. And how grippy the pedal is. Like the pedal stays in like the same trajectory as his foot for for so long. It looks yeah. like it's a clip and then it just lets go in free fall. Right Nap 510 rubber. <laughs> just like, you know when your crank breaks, it sticks to your foot. This is definitely I mean, the most graphic failure we've had. Does that not happen all the time? Like, I can't remember the last time I rode a bike and the crank didn't snap in half. It's okay. pretty much a regular occurrence. <laughs> Let's, I've got a serious, serious question for you guys. Henry, when was the last time you broke a carbon crank? And do you have or have now any hesitation about running carbon cranks? Um, have I ever broken a carbon crank? I put some horrific gouges in them that make me really uncomfortable. Yeah, but they didn't break. Um, but they didn't break. Funnily enough, last time I had some perfect gouges. Then I snapped a pedal before the crank went. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was just like, well, I didn't expect that. And no, man, I just think that area is a bike of a bike is not where I want to be stripping weight. I would gladly have. You could save a hundred grams though. A hundred grams oh. is a lot. No, I'm just joking. You see, if it could be, if they'd save me 110 grams, I'd think about it. But for merely a hundred. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can get this man, you titanium cranks. Yeah. Matt, what do you think yeah. about carbon cranks? Have you ever broken any? And moving forward, are you happy to run carbon cranks on your personal enduro bike? I couldn't wait for you to ask me this question oh, because uh, probably about four or five years ago, I had my enduro bike set up with carbon cranks. That's just what came on it. And I broke the crank eight kilometers into a 50K ride. I like and where this is going. I thought it was a nice day and I might as well continue with one crank. So I've removed the broken pedal or sorry, the broken 
crank arm piece from the rest of the pedal, jammed it into the spindle, zip tied in place, and somehow, luckily they were clips, so I was able to one-legged pedal for the rest of the, you know, traverse, and then I knew the downhill was going to take up the majority of the ride, so I was able to kind of rest one foot on the spindle and the other on the crank. And I immediately changed those for aluminum and haven't looked back. <laughs> whose who's cranks were they? Do you know why they broke? Do you know what happened? Did you damage them? Uh, Maybe. So I went through a couple sets of these and they have since been revised. Whose cranks? Um, Just tell us. <laughs> They're Matt's uh, they were, cranks. Listen to the story. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> they were some older carbon E13s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I uh, share my sympathies with Aaron Gwynn when he broke his. Yeah. So I knew what he went through. But uh, yeah, it's just not a place where, you know, I was even talking to somebody else about this today. Um, you could, even if you started with new cranks, new carbon cranks on a descent, and somehow some rock flew up and damaged them, you wouldn't necessarily know that. And you could go into the next section and, and break your cranks and potentially an ankle. So... It's not a place where I need to save weight. And I've, yeah, numerous times smoked these aluminum ones and they haven't missed a beat. So do you, do you run aluminum handlebars only as well? I don't, I I do like the feel of carbon. Uh, I get a lot less vibration from them. Like if you've ever swung like an aluminum baseball bat, it's atrocious to hold on to. It's so painful, but a lot of these carbon bars. collecting days, Matt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know me and my stature all five <laughs> five ten and 170 pounds yeah but carries a big bat uh, <laughs> scary guy yeah i i like the feel of carbon bars uh, i feel like they have something to offer that aluminum doesn't there and it's not so much for the weight savings uh it's more for the feel and they're in a pretty safe spot but if i do damage them for sure i'm gonna swap them out okay let's Let's go from the lightest e-bike on test to the heaviest e-bike on test. That's the Norco Range VLT, 170 mils of rear wheel travel, 180 mil fork, a 900 watt hour battery. Guys, big heavy e-bike like this, what did it feel like on the trail? Was it, if you're, if you are at the top of the mountain and you're on, you're ready to descend, would you choose a lighter e-bike if you could? Does it, does it negatively affect the bike on the descents? Yeah, I did notice that bigger battery. I mean, I think all the bikes are a fairly similar weight. It would have been interesting to, you know, be able to get their frame weight alone. They're all too heavy. <laughs> they have motors. Okay, let's just put them on a, yeah, all the same motors pretty much in test. But I think that bigger battery did make the bike more challenging to tip from one corner to the next and change direction faster. It would have been cool to also try it out with the the 540 battery and see if that made much of a difference. We had some people wondering what the point is of a carbon e-bike. They're they're way more money. You have a motor, so kind of like what does it matter? Like this Norco weighs 56 or whatever pounds, so why not let it weigh 58, be aluminum, and save two thousand dollars? I think that's a cool approach, especially if you're on a budget. And I think we learned that with the commensal. Like, I don't think there was any disadvantages for it being aluminum versus the other bikes. But if you have the cash and you want to save a little bit more weight, yeah, why not go with the carbon? Um, it The carbon construction also does let some companies do things a bit different. You can't do all the same 
build processes with aluminum sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that could be a limiting factor. And theoretically, a lighter e-bike should, you should get better, better battery range if the package they're trying to power is lighter. So it's going to be a, a, not a huge amount, but I do think that, like, I even noticed that range can change if you put like a mud spike on the back compared to like your normal tire that can affect your battery range. So Kaz, what's the biggest battery out there right now? Are people, are there thousand watt hour batteries? Do you know? I think or they exist, even? but I think they exist, but I haven't seen anything from any mainstream companies. I think right now Norco is the biggest one you can get from like a more like a, a typical brand. That's the biggest option that I've seen. You can get that Rocky power play, either the instinct or altitude power play with the, with their, uh, bottle mount battery. Oh yeah. Right. With the range. Yeah. I should have to clarify to... for the like in frame battery. I've never seen anything bigger than oh, 900. True. Yeah. Like, but yeah, they, they do have range extensions, mm -hmm. which they make right. bikes look so funny. Okay. So we've still got to talk about the Commensal MetaPower and the Yeti 160E. I know Henry is dying to go for a bike ride on this new fancy unreleased bicycle he has. He's giving me the eye right now. So we're going to fly new e through. New e-bike. Yes, he's so excited. <laughs> it's a new e-bike, everybody. Okay, so let's let's quickly talk about the MetaPower aluminum frame. Um, a lot of commenters really like this bike. It makes a lot of sense when you factor in the price, the weight, and the performance the one bummer, though, was that seat tube, Henry. Uh, some people said that it was the wrong size for you. We're back to this again. But it was definitely too long, it wasn't, wasn't it? the wrong size. It, yeah. You know, it sounds, I'm, I'm right in the middle of the size guide. It's a 475mm reach bike. If we go off a of reach, it was actually one of the shorter reaches. So, you know, that got that factor in. Honestly, I think it's a really good bike. And it was so disappointing about about the seat tube right it, yeah it, it was just it feels somewhat unnecessary i suppose they've got that kind of that bolt going through the seat tube there so for insertion to get the, yeah. to get the insertion depth they have to run it quite high but listen enduro bikes anything meant to go up and down the beauty of it is that they are, are all inherently compromised and that's the design challenge and that's why it's such an exciting category of bikes so Getting a bike that has a low enough seat tube with enough insertion depth is one of the challenges, and sadly, it wasn't one they quite they quite got right. I mean, fair play to the seat tube; it was actually almost turning, you know, self. It was auto cannibalism at one point as it started oh to eat, eat the seat post itself. I think it was just Jeez. trying to reduce the amount of metal in that area. <laughs> We're going to get shorter. It made bit. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was much. making burning sounds as I was pulling that post out. <laughs> Mate, it was incredible. I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I've seen some chopped up seat, seat posts in my time. Yeah, yeah. That thing, hell's bells. It was yeah. an absolute rotter. I think I, it sounds like we can all agree if this bike had a shorter seat tube and one that didn't eat the seat posts, it almost sounds like this bike might have been everybody's favorite e-bike on oh. the test. The thing is, for seven thousand dollars, it doesn't a Dremel doesn't cost six grand, so you're already quids in. Just in. right. <laughs> no joking aside, I mean, this is a it rides really well. It's a great bike, and it is so cheap. And you know, we, we kind of joke about it before, but I, I think it's true. Like with the other e-bikes, you buy it for say double the price. It will break because it's an e-bike. And when yeah. it does, with the common salt, you can just buy another one and still be, you can still be there for the same amount. For 14 grand, you can get right. two. Right. right, I mean, when when it's in the shop, it's a genuinely true story. A friend of mine works in a shop in Wales and somebody broke an e-bike. They broke their front triangle. 
which wasn't actually due to an e-bike, admittedly. But they, this was back in maybe June. And they said, and um, when's when's the replacement coming in? Oh, and they said, oh, good news. It'll only um, it'll only be February. And they're like, February? That's ages. I'm like, oh, but that's, that's February 2023. And they were just like, what? I've had this bike for like six weeks. <laughs> I would be livid. I would be livid. Livid. So did they just buy a different one? Um, I haven't actually... I haven't found out the rest of the story. I haven't spoken to him since, but with the common side, I mean, if it's the Yeti, the Yeti's literally twice the price. It's not far off. It's yeah. absolutely obscene. Let's, let's talk about that Yeti next. That's the next one. So this is the new Yeti 160E, $12,700 price tag. So we did have a commenter, well, we had a few commenters uh, that said how we didn't list the price as a con. And... One thing I will mention is that I think that's always tough for us. Like when it's when it's obviously way out of line is one thing, but the other thing is twelve thousand dollars to me is like I could retire, Kaz, if I had an extra twelve thousand dollars. Uh-huh. You know, I feel like I could retire and like You're move not somewhere. Retired? What are you doing right now? What I want to see is cruising around Scummish, walking your dog in slacks. That's a retired man. <laughs> yeah, I was sure he was it's, retired. It's, too, a good, so. it's a good life, everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just fucking bumbling down to Timbo Hortons with your mates. <laughs> but the the point is, the point is money is different for all of us. So it's, it is difficult sometimes for us to say like, hey, it's, you know, this is a con because I guarantee you Yeti is going to sell all of those bikes, eh, Kaz? Oh, for sure. It's also like $3,000 cheaper than the Specialized. So it, it's, I, yeah, for like, obviously it's a ton of money too, but then you also must have to reset your calibration of what things cost because these are e-bikes so they have motors and things that cost even more money but like i'm not going to try to defend a twelve thousand dollar bike as being a great value but it's a brand new platform you know it's from a a small-ish company like not small but like they're kind of known for expensive bikes and this upholds that but again there are more expensive and there's less expensive it's about that's kind of why we focus more on the 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 performance for these ones where we have our own value field test that comes up later, where those are the ones we get the bikes at their certain price points and see how they deliver there. No, to be fair, I did just call, I just called the pricing obscene, which is unfair because I didn't say the same thing about the specialized for the record. I also think the specialized is unbelievably expensive. It's so much money. I mean, one thing I would say though is, and I understand that it's a smaller brand and it's made out of carbon, but compared to the common salt, it's got a lot of the same build kit. It's got the same motor. I just don't get where they pull five grand from. I know, well, five or six grand, however much it is. I know, I know it's more refined. I know it comes in an array of choices of teal or black. And I know it might have some like fancier wheels, but that's a huge, huge amount of money. Yeah. You also have to, don't forget the consumer. Yeah, I think the other thing pricing versus shop, you know, like, to, yeah, I don't know I where to, I don't know. I can't it's pull hard. five grand either, you know, but like that is part of it. But again, if you're a consumer, how much does that matter? A lot of people are totally fine with consumer directive, mm-hmm. you know, which is, that'll save you a ton of money. So yeah, we're not, one, I don't know. one thing, one thing that happened to me twice, just going back to the normal bikes, well, the regular enduro bikes, twice riding that Yeti. Oh, so this guy went, so riding the YT, this guy went, that's a nice Yeti. And I was like, YT. He was like, yeah, Yeti. I was like, YT, Yeti. I was like, God. And then another guy said, oh my God, that new Yeti is gorgeous. I just rode away. Wasn't yeah. worth my time. But think you saved so much money. If you purchase that, everyone thinks you have a Yeti and you saved like five grand by getting the YT. Yeah. That's where that color comes from. Yeah, you take the bowels out of your Yeti, you yeah. get YT. 
at the country club, they were going to find you out like six months down the line. Wait a minute. That yeah. isn't a white a Yeti. Get out of here. Another quick point on the on the value, perceived value of the bike. It depends on the market that you're in too, like what region you are in the world. Because, you know, I know the specialized bikes have really good value in the US. And I see a lot of the commenters from Europe saying that they don't have the same value. So they're, and I know that also happens with some suspension products too. Um, I think Olin's and Fox uh, kind of switch price point brackets uh, from Europe to North America. So some people say that one's good value here and the other one's good value in their country. So it depends where you are. And you kind of have to listen to our talking points on the components and how they performed and kind of apply that to what you budget for your bike. Yeah, it's it's tough for us with these particular field tests because we're not really here to tell you that a bike is a killer deal or not a killer deal. Uh, we want to tell you how the bike performs. When we do the value bike field tests, that's when we really hone in on pricing and, and try to figure out which one offers you the most performance for your buck. But these normal field tests aren't really the place for that. Okay, let's go back to this Yeti 160E because it has a completely new suspension design on it from Yeti and Yeti for a long time they've been working with their switch infinity system with the little slidey things that move up and down looks like a bunch of little shocks underneath there and a takeaway that I've had with that suspension design is that it's been extremely well-rounded it's been able to pedal nice it does all the bump things all the suspension things it's supposed to do but here we are a new Yeti and they're using a completely different design Kaz, why is that? Uh, I think some of that is, again, to fit that motor in there. You know, the motor and the packaging where that traditional Switch Infinity sits. It's kind of, that's going to be, that room will be taken up by the motor. And they wanted to design something kind of for this. And they've always been working on, like I visited Yeti to see, check out this bike and see their past projects. And the number of little slidey different implementations of that design is, it's pretty interesting what they've, you know, what they've come up with. They have a really, um, there's some smart engineers there that, that created this one so yeah i think just to make something specific for an e-bike to work to make it work the way they wanted mm -hmm. when you say specific with e-bike what are some of the specific things that they might have been looking for uh, well like i said i think a lot of it has to do with the space constraints but with this bike their goals were it's pretty similar to what you'd want with a, a regular bike to pedal well but then we hit bigger bumps it you know kind of the suspension isn't really as affected um, like not a ton of chain growth deeper in the stroke but a good pedaling platform I mean, Henry, Henry really liked this one, right? Yeah, it, it rode well. One thing they managed to do is basically it's got really consistent anti-squat across the whole gear range of just above 100%. And then basically as the bike goes through its travel, and it's called the inflection point when that lower link begins to rotate in the other direction, similar to a Switch Infinity, it basically dumps off all the anti-squat. So you can, you can basically have... It doesn't interfere with the end of the stroke. I mean, it's a really, really good system. I think what Mike was saying is absolutely right in that they built this system to incorporate a battery and a motor and all the kind of architectural constraints that you have with an e-bike. But I think actually in the way that it operates, it's a different execution of a lot of the same design aims or characteristics as the standard Switch Infinity. It still goes through its travel, then it still then it reverts the lower link and it basically dumps off a load of anti-squat to give... Um, yeah, really a, a suspension system that genuinely does give small small support, medium stroke and end stroke. It's fantastic. 
Does this design have less anti-squat than a non-motorized version? I I think it actually has more. (laughs) I feel like I remember reading that it had less anti-squat because it was meant to work with an e-bike, which on an e-bike, obviously you're maybe... Some people might be a little less worried about pedaling performance. Well, this is, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is really important. I think across all the e-bikes, people did say in the comments, why are you talking about pedaling performance? But actually, for me, pedaling performance and the way we think about how suspension bobs, it's actually in relation to the, the kind of the transfer of our own mass and the movement of the center of gravity on the bike. And so when you've got the bikes that give a better pedaling platform, that is so important because it means they're then subsequently less lurchy on the power. When you've got bikes that do move up and down and they basically are constantly reacting to your own power input and you're, you've got you know, a fair few watts there to generate power, it does mean that it kind of blows off grip in a way that having something that's smooth and consistent just doesn't. Because these motors are so on-off, having another variable in the mix just that suddenly delivers a load of power and then a second slip isn't always helpful i think it's better to have something that can deal with your weight moving around the bike and really control it when you're seated to give a nice consistent platform yeah yeah Yeah, i stand corrected on the anti-squat henry but i would agree with everything you said there and it was pretty wild to get on this bike in comparison to the other e-bikes because i remember one commenter asked you know how does the weight play into suspension performance and do you really need premium suspension on an e-bike and i think it comes down to the skill of the rider and what they're looking to get out of the bike but there was definitely like an incremental jump in performance from riding the range vlt and the meta power 29 to the 160e the yeti just carried speed it pushed you over the bumps it pushed you forwards it didn't get bogged down in those it didn't just absorb the bump it seemed to propel you a bit more. And like Henry said, like no matter where you were in the stroke, it just kind of had that same feeling of giving you traction, but also moving forwards. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back to the Shimano motor. We, we talked a bit of shit about the Specialized one. We didn't like how loud it was. It's kind of loud and whiny. Um, let's talk about EP8s, the Shimano motor. So we only had one bike with the Specialized motor um the the motor that specialized uses and one or sorry the rest of the bikes with the shimano ep8 motor that's their new e-bike motor guys um i mentioned this in our roundtable video you guys found that it made some clunky noises right or was that just me no those some of those things they did sound pretty rough it sounded like courtney love drank a pint of cement some of them yes It was, it was, it was too much, but it's a really hard thing. I mean, we, we talked about it in the round table, but some of these bikes, although they, their capabilities are amazing, they ride really well. They sometimes don't feel that refined. And that's one thing the Specialized does offer. We talked about the, the integration before. And can you remember like 10 years ago when everyone had like clunky sat navs, they used to stick to their windscreen. That's what some of those e-bikes feel like. Whereas a Specialized feels like an incorporated dash system with the Bluetooth and this, that, and the other. Um, and I think part of that motor noise, it does make it feel just a little rough around the edges. Right. Yeah. If, yeah, if they Five can get rid years of that. from now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think we are going to have some amazing e-bikes right now. Uh, man, a lot of them remind me of like rattly tractors and like not ideal. I understand 
I understand the idea behind them and they're fun and all this stuff, but I would just like to see the execution much better. And I suspect in five years or less, we're going to see, we're going to see wireless motor control. Maybe Kaz, maybe instead of a display on the bike, the display will be on your smartwatch or something. You could control your, your, your power there. I don't know, but right now they're kind of meh. Wouldn't it be great to have an e-bike that you could ride indoors on a virtual reality system? Put it on a turbo trainer, have your favourite scenery. No rattling. No, no rattling. rattling. <laughs> Put those Oculus goggles VR. on. VR e-biking's the future. <laughs> yeah. Before we end, Kaz was just about to defend e-bikes. So let's let's hear it. <laughs> no, I don't think they're meh. Like, they're so fun, some of them. So like, but I do agree that like... No, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. They are fun, for sure. Yeah. But, but I, I'm with you on the motor. Rattling. No, like it's going to be like a time when when the clutch derailleur came out. And we're like, oh, we don't have to have this noise. This is amazing. So I think that that's right now with the the motor systems for these. We're in the non-clutch derailleur time where it's like pretty loud. They work. We are. You get all the power. You get the batteries are getting better. But it's still, yeah, I don't want that noise either. Like if you have a silent on the sense, a silent e-bike, that seems like the way it should go. So hopefully EP9 does that maybe. All right, I think we covered just about everything that we wanted to talk about when it comes to mountain bikes and EMTBs at our last field test. So if you have more questions, put them down below and either I'll answer them or somebody else from the field test will get to them. Make sure to rate the podcast on whichever app you're using. Give us a 10 out of 10 rating and put those comments down below. I have no idea what next week's podcast is going to be. Hopefully I figure it out before we record it. We'll see you guys there. <laughs>